Welcome to Emergency to Emergence, a podcast produced by Sterling College. I'm Nakasi Fortune. And I'm Dakota Lacroix. This podcast intends to engage in spirited, heart-centered dialogue about intersecting eco-social emergencies, featuring the voices and perspectives of people purposefully engaging in ecological thinking and action, while fostering active, community-engaged responses that offer hope. Joining us today is Josh Boson. Josh is faculty in outdoor education at Sterling. His passion for outdoor endeavors has taken him throughout North America, as far as the southern tip of South America, through the regions of Patagonia. Welcome, Josh. So nice of you to take a few minutes out of your day to talk about your passion for outdoors. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much, Josh, for being with us. Can you share some of share with us a significant experience that shaped your relationship with your natural surroundings? Sure. Um, yeah. So I grew up just south of Boston in Sharon, Massachusetts, in a pretty classic uh, suburban environment, and didn't have a ton of uh, wilderness experiences that I that I now kind of know and seek out. But I was fortunate enough to have a family who was supportive of me going to camp. And that was kind of the big entry point is I got sent away to summer camp in Western Massachusetts. And that was the first time I slept outside. It was the first time I went rock climbing um, and really just kind of like fell in love with the outdoor world. So for me, that was kind of the, the big opportunity and entry point. From your past, we can see you have a fair amount of training in the outdoors, such as being a Knowles instructor, which stands for National Outdoor Leadership School. Can you tell our audience kind of what really made you want to take that leap into this uh, next level of experiential learning and, and into the outdoors? Yeah, it's kind of funny now being a, being a professor, it's probably one of the last jobs I thought I'd have, but <laughs> essentially for me, The point came after high school when it was time to kind of decide about going to college, not going to college, what to go to college for. I was basically looking for degree programs that would have me outdoors a lot and would end me with a job where I wasn't sitting behind a desk. Um, Funny enough, now I do a fair amount of that, but (laughs) but for a a good portion of my career, I haven't, which has been great. And so that's where I found outdoor education as a major and as an area of study and a profession. And so I went to, to school at Johnson State College, now NVU Johnson, and did their four-year outdoor education degree. And as I was kind of finishing up my time there, I decided the next step I wanted to do was a lot of field instructing. And so that's where Knowles comes in. Is um, They're a very reputable company, and, and many folks and listeners will probably have heard of them or have been on a trip with them before, but they offer courses all over the world. And lengths from a couple of days up to a whole year. So for me, it was an opportunity to do a lot of field instructing in a short amount of time was to go and work for them. And so I ended up taking an instructor course with them in Alaska and then working up in Alaska for, uh, I think, four, yeah, four years after that, which, yeah, definitely created a lot of opportunity and, and a chance to just work with a bunch of students. And that was actually at a point when, for me, I realized how much more I liked uh, watching other people have that aha moment, kind of like that uh, camp story from earlier. Yeah. Um, and so that was that was big, was a discovery that I was way more into that than I was in whether or not I personally got to the summit of a mountain, so to speak. 
Um, and so that's where teaching really started to kind of dwell on me a bit more and became more of a focus area was that I realized I was way more interested in, in helping other people have that moment of connection to the natural world mm-hmm. than I was in trying to push my own limits, which you know is often a thing associated with outdoor programming. Can you just briefly follow up a little bit on that aha moment for us that sounds significant? Yeah. So this is kind of my teaching philosophy and, and what, I, what I'm about and what I think the value of outdoor education is. Chris Tompkins is a conservationist. She's amazing. But one of, the, one of the quotes that I've always held on to from her is that she said, people only protect the things they love. And to love something, you first have to inherently identify with it. And so to me, this is like so true, right? Any person, I've asked tons and tons of people this question of, What's a place that you have a really positive memory or association mm, with that's yeah. outdoors? So the part for where outdoor education meets environmentalist in my world is um, just there's way more people who don't have a positive association with mm-hmm. nature anymore compared to you know many years ago with uh, technology and cities and all the, the great things that those provided does limit our interaction with the natural world. And so the part of outdoor education that I work in really gives people the opportunity to have that positive association again. And so, you know, rock climbing is great for a lot of reasons, but it also means that people build a really special moment with a specific region. And that's, that's the secret underlying thing I'm working on. Oh, that's powerful. And you, you've done a lot of backcountry work. What are some of the characteristics that define backcountry leadership? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's different for everyone, but some of the stuff that we kind of commonly associate with it is the ability to have judgment and decision-making in those environments. And so the more time you spend in a wilderness environment, the more opportunities you have to engage with risk and the more likely you are to kind of develop a a better risk assessment toolbox. So for example, if you go out and get caught in a really bad thunderstorm, you're likely to come away with some learning of like, oh, I noticed that the clouds were rolling in and all the leaves turned up and it got really windy. And so the next time when you go out, when those things start to happen, you're more likely to be able to assess that risk and know what to do instead. And so, yeah, I mean, backcountry leadership is a really wide spectrum, but, but really what we're at a base level is like looking for our leaders to keep our participants safe uh, emotionally and mentally and physically. So that's, that's kind of a big part is, is developing that judgment and decision-making skill set. Josh, it sounds like the word trust comes to mind. Can you speak about that in regards to outdoor education? Trust is a really really fragile thing, right? For all of us. And it's no different. It's actually just a more uh, surface level trust in in outdoor programming is your participants or whoever it may be kind of comes in and expects that you come with a certain skill set and they're going to put more trust in you than you'd think. Um, It's amazing what people will blindly trust someone they've never met to do if they're wearing the right colored shirt and look professional and are part of an organization and all that. So um, yeah, there's a lot of trust that's there, but I think it's built on because of an industry that we have where people uh, put a lot of energy into training and making sure that leaders are prepared for the people that they'll be taking out so that trust can be maintained. And so really it's about, um, yeah, making sure that you don't lose the trust, not so much gaining it. I think it's uh, what I've seen is it's kind of there, like I'll take students rock climbing And I'm shocked that more of them don't ask questions right away that they're just like, okay, I'll just lean off this cliff because Josh said that was fine. But for me, it's about, it's about, yeah, maintaining that trust and also making sure that we avoid a thing called uh, kind of the slang term is uh, guide halo. 
And this is where participants do exactly what I described. They show up and just blindly trust somebody. Even if your gut is saying, this doesn't seem right, you don't feel comfortable asking the question because there's that professional there. They have all the experience. There's no way they could possibly have messed up. So I shouldn't say anything. Um, and that's actually the last thing we want as an outdoor leader. We want our participants to feel comfortable questioning and, and, and yeah, just challenging the system. And so that's a big part of what I spend a lot of time early in a course. Um, that's kind of how I get the two-way trust is I, I need to know that they're going to ask questions and I don't intentionally make mistakes, but I do make sure that there are opportunities early on for students to, to really like explore that gut reaction and, and, and have an opportunity where that goes well. So they can say, you know, oh, are you, did you tie that knot right? Or how is that supposed to be? And rather than reacting in a negative way, I'm like, oh, awesome. Thanks. Yes. Let's check that again. And showing them that nothing bad comes from that. And so that it's kind of reinforced as a good way to go. Being in the back country, there's so much you have to, you have to push yourself beyond your comfort zone. Well, at least for me, <laughs> you got to just always keep thinking outside of the box and doing things that challenge you. Why is challenge an important element of an education in ecological thinking and action? Yeah, uh, challenge is, is valuable for everyone. This goes back to kind of some of that stuff I was talking about with Chris Tompkins in that um, it's another thing we don't naturally have anymore, right? Humans, we had a lot of challenge when we were trying to uh, just survive, just physically make it to the next day. And so as modern conveniences have made that kind of challenge disappear from our lives, um, a lot of what we do in outdoor programming is creating those opportunities for challenge. And so it's exactly what you're saying, Nikasi. It's not so much what the specific challenge is. It's just the opportunity to take on challenge and take on some adversity. So the nice thing is, is it's, it's a really easy, natural uh, part of what we do with outdoor education. We don't have to work very hard to have that happen, um, right? If I say we're going to go rock climbing, that's going to be hard. <laughs> I don't have to, you know, seek out a way to like kind of in a contrived way, make it more challenging. I can let the experience kind of provide the natural challenge. and so. I think that's a big part of why trips, expeditions, backcountry travel just kind of work so well, right? Like the instructor does provide something, but really the, the experience is, is just as much a co-instructor. How have you witnessed, Josh, some of these students face the challenge and overcome it? There's a, there's a fine line. There's a bunch of different models that we use, but essentially there's a, there's a moment that I think a lot of us can relate to where something you do all the time is so easy that you don't even think about it. You can just do it. And it kind of just like, like driving a car, right? Sometimes you can just get lost in driving a car and you get to where you were and you don't really remember the drive because it's so easy versus driving in a snowstorm. Every single moment of it, you're present for it fully engages your body and you can remember every specific moment of it. And then there becomes this kind of too far moment where you're driving in that snowstorm and you almost crash. The car starts swerving. You may not even remember exactly what happened, right? And so what's going on there is uh, your brain essentially has gone from kind of like in fully engaged to overstimulated. And so for outdoor education, the way that looks is we want to try to keep ourselves in the flow state in that kind of like maximum engagement level as much as we possibly can. So that's where the facilitator, guide, instructor, whatever you want to call it, that's where they kind of come in is, is their ability to read the group and, and have an understanding of, are they so below their threshold that they're not even really having to work hard? Or are they so far over 
that they're not even going to remember this experience. They're not going to take any positive association away from it. And, and our goal is to try to keep them in that flow zone as much as possible. that you come to the world of outdoor education with you know years of academic and recreational experience what does or what can inclusivity look like in this in this world so this is uh, an area that's like all industries has been one that we've been dealing with more and more uh kind of in the on the face but the reality is is that recreation has been something that's supposed to be and and has been historically for everyone um, we just have gotten away from creating the opportunity and the entry points more recently, in my opinion. And so one of the one of the things is reducing barriers to entry into mm -hmm. outdoor programming. So some of the things that are uh, talked about, like in my expedition planning and management class right now, we're reading a book called uh, The Adventure Gap by James Edward Mills. It's a phenomenal book. It's about a story of the first all African American ascent of Denali, which took place in 2013. It's a great story about expeditioning and what it's like to be on an expedition. And so that's why it's useful in that class. But it has a convenient kind of alternating chapter story where they look at a historical figure in the mountaineering world who's a person of color and what their experience was getting into it and why they were able to get into the field and kind of what allowed them to be successful. So we're having some nice conversations about that. But some of the points that we keep talking about of like, okay, so what is stopping other people from accessing this thing that we all love? And the common things that come up is the financial burden, right? So a lot of this stuff isn't cheap. Um, going for a hike, pretty cheap, but going ice climbing, very expensive upfront. Not only do you need somebody with a ton of experience and training, you also need a lot of equipment. So equipment, in, in my opinion, that's the easy barrier for entry because we can solve that problem. We have in a number of ways. An easy example is Sterling College itself. So we've developed a equipment fleet and a rental center where we can provide all of our students with really high-end equipment for basically a dollar or two dollars a day to go and do things. And so we've essentially eliminated that major barrier. They can put it on their student account, which means they can work with their financial aid package and pay when they can. And we we're giving them not just like, you know, third grandparents leftover, broken, whatever. It's new top of the line, same stuff that a person with a ton of money would have access to. So it's really, it's really creating that opportunity of like removing one big barrier. And then some of the other, some of the other barriers are uh, the location, right? So you've mentioned even in my description, a lot of the places that I like to go in my leisure time are far away and hard to get to. And that's part of the appeal for me. But the reality is, is not everyone's going to have a chance to do that. And so bringing outdoor education and experiential learning to more urban areas is is such an easy thing to do and that's kind of what we're starting to see more of now and um urban outdoor education is something that people maybe have heard of whereas you know five ten years ago that wasn't something you would have have heard of josh what might that look like out of curiosity is that more of like a mobile setting when you say setting up these urban kind of environmental experiences or outdoor education experiences yeah and, and uh, it's it's redefining what the word wilderness means and backcountry mm. right like yeah it doesn't have to be in a place where you can't hear a plane, see a car, have lights, right? That's like what we historically have thought of as like, that's the wilderness in the backcountry. Sure. 
and and really realizing that like there are trees and there are bugs and there are plants and there are hills <laughs> and there are ways to recreate all over the world um and whether you're in a city whether you're near a coast whatever it may be and so uh, a big part of it is yeah is just redefining what outdoor education or really experiential education could be and, and it's a, a bit of what you're saying like yes you can bring some of some things to other areas so you can you can have mobile setups but for me it's that's a nice option but that's that doesn't solve all problems um it still requires a lot of money right to have a trailer with some trained professionals coming around to teach leave no trace isn't cheap for me it's more like redefining how and where you can do experiential education so if you realize that you can do it in a classroom you can do it inside right those are big changes you can do it online that all of a sudden changes the access point so you know, ultimately, yes, I do still think it's great for people to go outside and and try to find uh, whatever feels more remote to them when they can. But the reality is, is that there's actually plenty of access to it in a, a much more local scale. One of the things that I think is is worth mentioning is the relationship uh, between people of color, uh, particularly black people in America and the natural world and that negative association that they have with it. And, you know, I think that the media plays a huge role in how, well, the media and history, but right now the media plays a huge role in how we perceive the natural world. Can you share some of the work that you know of that's being done to kind of correct that perception, if if that's the, the best way to phrase that? Yeah, well, I don't feel qualified to speak on what the what? media is doing, to, <laughs> right? Like, I agree that, that with everything you said, and, mm-hmm. I, and I am hoping that I don't have any control over the media, but I'm hoping that they continue to uh, move in a better direction with the portrayal of yeah, that experience. But what I can speak to is what some, some professionals and what some major parts of the outdoor industry are doing. So one that I think is really worth mentioning is the national park system, right? So this is the model was that the parks are they're they're owned by us. They're for everyone in the and they're America's best idea in the Ken Burns documentary words. Um, <laughs> and, and really, are they really for everyone? Do we set up an environment that's inviting for everyone? Is is the park set up in a way that everyone can enjoy nature the way they enjoy nature? And so once we started asking those questions, there were a lot of things that seemed very minor. And kind of obvious. And now when I say them, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, that makes complete sense. So, like, for example, when you go to a national park and you get a campground and you get a campsite, I mean, at a campground, you're likely going to get a spot for one car, one or two tents, and a picnic table that can hold a family of four to six, right? So, that's like a pretty narrow viewpoint on what is a family or what's somebody coming to, to recreate. And so, when the national parks did some surveys recently and basically found out that like, well, if you're from a, a Latino family, you more likely would go on vacation with like 30 people um, and it would be an extended family trip. And so just some of those things that you don't even think about, like a picnic table big enough for what other people consider a family outing compared to kind of the status quo and norm that has been established. And so there's really simple things like that of just like, simple infrastructure is not super inviting right now for people who want to use the parks in a different way. So not to, yeah, so we don't go too far down that rabbit hole. There is so much more, but that's like a fun little simple version of like, right, we can just change some of the basic access points at the park, physical infrastructure to make it more inclusive. Yeah. You know, and I think even beyond um, BIPOC folks, I think making it accessible to people who were differently abled 
is a whole other oh, rabbit yeah, hole that sure. we can go down into a whole other conversation that we can have. That's a great point, Acacia, is our, our physical beings and bodies mm-hmm. as well uh, in that relationship to nature and even what we're defining as nature or outdoors. Yeah, absolutely. This is, this is an area where I think the outdoor industry actually excels and does quite well. A lot of uh, physical disabilities happen through potential adventure sports, right? So people, mm. when you think of getting paralyzed, it often could be associated with skiing accidents or climbing accidents or a whole, whole bunch of um, unfortunate high-risk activities accidents, right? And so there was a population since the beginning of doing any of these activities where people would get hurt and still want to do that activity. And so there's actually been blind climbers, you know, everything you can think of on all of these mountains and all of these things for as long as there's been people recording and climbing these things and doing these activities. So there's actually been a lot of advancement long ago in terms of the equipment to make adaptive recreation a, a possibility. This year, we actually brought an adaptive recreation course to Sterling. Oh, wow. And it was an opportunity for students to learn kind of the, the introductory kind of history and, and support skills to go with that. And we worked with um, Smuggler's Notch Ski Resort. They have a, a really, really good adaptive ski program. And it's not just looking at things like physical disability, but really one of the, the bigger takeaways that we've, we're hoping our students come away with is that inclusive programming should be inclusive for everyone. So rather yeah. than you know, that we actually have a lot of uh, like specialized programming. So if you have a, a group of veterans uh, without limbs and they want to go on a trip, that exists. There's lots of great programming that's doing that. But rather, um, what we should be doing is making all of our programs accessible to as wide a range of people as we, as we can, safely can. And so that was kind of what we're hoping the big takeaway was for students in the adaptive rec courses, rather than trying to program for a specific audience make your programming available to a larger audience. Um, so if you're thinking about, yeah, the ways you speak and the things you do and like even visuals, right? So if you're, what you're teaching about requires a, you to, you know, use certain color ropes, like that could eliminate somebody who's colorblind. And so like, can you do the same programming and make it not about the color of the rope? So there's just like little questions like that where we can ask ourselves of like, does this need to be an exclusive thing or can we include more people by using different language or using different materials? And often the answer is yes. And it's just, nobody's thought of it like to go that way yet. Careful and intentional preparation is really essential for venturing into the backcountry. You know, in some ways, it's a process of getting ready for the known unknowns. What can the exercise of preparing for a backcountry trip teach us about preparing for living through, you know, the changing climate and linked ecological crisis? Yeah, well, before you had gotten to the end of that sentence, my, I, th- I think this will still tie in, but where my brain was going is all about uh, managing expectations. Mm. That is a huge thing that we talk about or that I talk about when I'm um, teaching courses and taking students and creating new leaders is is thinking about creating realistic and accurate expectations for your participants and your people. And so I think uh, to kind of tie it into what you were just getting at is right, like 
acknowledging that we have this emergency and and facing it head on. And so rather than going ice climbing and just saying, this is great, um, we talk to, I, I show, you know, it's places I've been to for 10 years or longer in some cases and can point out like, this is what this normally looks like. And at this time of year, we normally have this much more ice and now we don't. And I have students do some profiles on different uh, kind of more high-end athletes in the outdoor industry. And one of them being uh, Kitty Calhoun. And she specifically is, is one of the things she's known for is a climb where it's the last known ascent. So in climbing, we make a big deal about the first person to climb something, but she oh, right. was, was uh, bold enough and um, smart enough to kind of get the last ascent of something and, and, and then basically turned it into an opportunity to have that discussion about climate change. Like, Hey, this, this climb is no longer safe and physically doable anymore because the ice is melted and not coming back because it's a glacier or seeding glacier. And so, um, that's, that's kind of where I go with it is it's, uh, yeah, just being very real and honest and open with our participants about the world they're engaging with and, and what it looks like. And, and that's the nice thing again, for outdoor education is, is we deal with it on a firsthand basis. So if you love any outdoor activity, you are going to care about the environment because on a, on just on a, you know, a selfish level, right. If you want to keep doing that activity, you need the natural world to stay in some semblance of balance. And so, um, yeah, I don't know any outdoor recreationalist who's not also an environmentalist. They may just not know it. <laughs> Is there, you know, I know in um, within the outdoor uh, world, there's this saying of perceived risk versus actual risk. And I suppose that could be, you know, trends that could be used across all aspects of life um, within the context of of climate change and, and all of these environmental issues. How do those things fit together? Well, uh, one thing to keep in mind there is uh, perceived risk feels pretty real to the person who's perceiving it. Um, sure. And so not diminishing that experience, but also trying to, uh, at the same time as that, also trying to educate people and give them um, that real risk and, and what the difference is. And so um, perceived risk has a value. I mean, there's there's something to be said for, to use the same example that we've been saying with like rock climbing, there's a high perceived risk in going top rope rock climbing. The real risk is actually very, very low. Um, driving your car to go climbing is so much more dangerous than going rock climbing, right? So that the perceived risk with driving isn't super high. The real risk is actually quite high. And similarly, climbing, we, we you know, there's a value there, but it's just acknowledging that you have a fear and, and still challenging yourself is valuable to people. And so perceived risk has a, a useful spot because it allows us to feel challenged, but actually not put ourselves at too much real risk. And so I think when we talk about like the environment and changing climates and um, all of that, it's, it's real risk. We've passed the perceived part. And so um, we're kind of in it now and I don't, yeah, it's not as good of a teacher once you're into the real risk, but it's still ever present and it's there and yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna make itself known to people pretty quickly. You've spoken about some of the challenges, and if you could just speak briefly as to how we're transmuting those into what gives you hope as well. I think one of the challenges we've been dealing with is uh, being so enthusiastic about getting outdoors, especially in the time of COVID, 
uh, recreation's at an all-time high. Parking lots are are full or overfull in a lot of cases, and with that comes that carrying capacity question. Yeah, which I think we have to wrestle with as like a planet as well. But we're definitely not immune to that, and we we've, we've been seeing that growing pains thing kind of happening to us in our industry lately. So that's that's something that we you know, are wrestling with and it's real is, is we've been saying for years how we want to get more people into the outdoors, but then how does that look and can we sustain that? And I think the answer is yes, there, there are lots of things we can do. Uh, for example, typically 90% of visitors to the national parks go to 10% of that park. So that means that most of the park isn't being used by most people. And so just just acknowledging that and that that can be good, right? Concentrating impact in high impact areas can be a useful practice to minimize our impact um, to the rest of it. But but also acknowledging that there's still plenty of opportunity and spaces for us to to go for those that want a more remote experience. So I, I do think we're we're working through that growing pain, but that there is a, a, a happier other side to that one. And to your question about what gives me hope, uh, it's doing what I do. I love working with students and creating that that aha moment and realizing that they could see a future for themselves in the outdoor world or mm. part of the environment. And um, yeah, I get to see that most days and it's pretty darn rewarding. <laughs> <laughs> well, Josh, I, I don't think I could have wrapped up this more perfectly. So thank you yeah. so much for, again, for taking time out of your day to, to join us and, and share about you know what's happening in the world of outdoor education. And what we can be doing, you know, to get outside just a touch more, um, all things considered. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Josh. I mean, I know we just hit the tip of the iceberg, pun intended there. And also (laughs) thanks for kind of inspiring us to look inward as we're, you know, trying to think about how we can re-engage the outdoors. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the time. If you enjoyed this conversation, do come back for the commendation. We'll spend a few more minutes with our most recent guests, identifying the specific works that inspire them so you can root further, draw new sources of nourishment, and connect to the emergence of vital possibilities. And before we come to a close, Sterling acknowledges that the land on which we gather, places now known as Vermont and Kentucky, are the traditional and unceded territories of several indigenous peoples, the Abenaki in the north and the Shawnee, Cherokee, Chickasaw, and Osage people to the south. We also learn in and from a range of landscapes that belong to other indigenous peoples in more than human kin. As we seek deep reciprocal relationships with nature, we respect and honor the place-based and cultural wisdom of indigenous ancestors and contemporaries. Words of acknowledgement and intention are just the first step. We must match them with acts of respect and repair. Thanks so much for listening. You can subscribe to Emergency to Emergence wherever you listen to podcasts. And a very special thanks to Sterling alum Fern Maddie for her musical creations. For more information on how Sterling is advancing ecological thinking and action, visit www.sterlingcollege.edu. If listening has prompted something new to emerge in you, we invite you to share your thoughts as a written message or voice recording, which you can send to podcast at sterlingcollege.edu. Until next time, this is Emergency to Emergence.